Imagine a civil rights regime that seeks to carve out space for people to be themselves fully, a regime that values expressions of individuality as central to the human experience. Imagine that the law recognizes a right to shave your head, a right to be fat, a right to be open about your same-sex partner, a right to wear your hair in braids, a right to transition from one sex to another, a right to have tattoos, a right to speak a language other than English. These examples are drawn from real cases, all of which point to a common problem. Civil rights law is stuck in the past. Time and time again, discrimination claimants find themselves shut out of a legal system that still views the group as the focal point of discrimination. The future of civil rights must be about individuals, and our right to personality is the vehicle to make this happen. That is from Outsiders by Zachary Kramer, who is our guest today on New Books in Law, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. Professor Kramer is the Willard H. Pedrick Distinguished Research Scholar at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. Professor Kramer, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, Kunga. It was uh, 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 great to be able to read your book, which you described as an ode to difference. Yes. And the, the, the subhead uh, is why difference is the future of civil rights. That's right. I, I, ha- I have to tell you up top that that was not the original subtitle of the book. Um, but when, okay. I got, when I got the contract, um, the one condition in the contract from Oxford was that I had to change the subtitle um, uh, and that it had to start with the word why. Uh, and so the initial subtitle was The Future of Civil Rights. Um, and the board of editors um, uh, agreed unanimously that it was too vague. And we didn't have a new subtitle until the book was already done with copy edits. It was getting ready to sent, uh, getting ready to be sent to the, uh, the printer. And um, a couple of us sat down and decided that we would email each other back and forth until we locked it in. And so we ended up at Why Difference is the Future of Civil Rights, which I'm very happy with. Um, but it's one of those funny things where it always bumps in my head as I hear it. <laughs> well, it's, it's always nice to get an insight into the, uh, the production process there. Sure. But um, I guess when, if we're thinking about the future of civil rights, it might be important to understand the present or the, mm-hmm. the past of civil rights. Could you yeah. lay out the um, current landscape? Sure. Yeah. So uh, civil rights means a lot of different things, um, and it's one of those legal concepts that is broad and touches on a lot of aspects of law. I am specifically thinking about statutory civil rights, laws like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, and some similar statutes like the ADA, um, some housing stuff. Uh, So I'm mainly thinking about um, rules that reach in um, both the public and then also into the private sphere, um, and specifically about employment. I tend to write mostly about employment. um, And uh, the book kind of picks up on uh, whether or not the landscape is changing in civil rights. Um, and in large part, I started thinking about writing the book in uh, 2014, um, which was the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Um, there were all of these uh, events that were going on around the country. I went to quite a few of them, spoke at a couple. Um, and it's one of the things where you would expect the conversation at the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Act would be celebratory, thinking about how much good the Civil Rights Act has done. Um, But by and large, uh, the ones I went to at least tended to be very depressing um, with kind of a great unhappiness with uh, civil rights law's ability to get things done today. So what does that mean specifically? Um, I'm talking about areas of law or statutes that protect on the basis of race discrimination, sex discrimination, color discrimination, 
religious discrimination, disability discrimination, national origin. Um, uh, and there was this general sense that those laws were really good at wiping out one particular kind of discrimination, um, which is when employers explicitly uh, embrace their discrimination. When they say, for example, you know, no women need apply, no blacks need apply. Um, when there were uh, workforces that had uh, no people of color, no women, um, uh, they were largely white and male, um, if not just uh, white. And so uh, the civil rights laws that we developed in the 60s and amended over time were very good at stamping out that kind of discrimination. They have been less good um, at getting more complicated forms of discrimination, um, possibly because identity traits uh, blend in, intersectionality um, issues, stuff like that. And then also just cases where employers are either more sophisticated or it's harder to spot whether discrimination is taking place. Uh, and so uh, my entry point into this um, is trying to think through both hard cases of discrimination. Um, a lot of my writing has been about the relationship between sex and gender and sexual orientation as an example, um, and unpacking those identity traits and whether or not they are because of sex um, is an impossible question and one that courts have been really struggling with. And the more time I spent there, um, the more I began thinking about um, uh, really all of the identity traits um, that we carry and that we wear um, and uh, how a lot of them, if not most of them, are in fact not protected by civil rights, uh, the civil rights laws um, and uh, trying to imagine a universe in which we could uh, protect all of them. The imaginative work that you're doing, I, I think it, it turns on this distinction that you draw between um, being and doing. Could you mm -hmm. talk about how those are different uh, and especially how they're different in terms of one's identity? Sure. So, you know, civil rights law in particular has never really done this well um, because the laws are written to say that, um, for instance, employers can't take race into account or sex into account. Um, and they do that by saying that um, they prohibit discrimination on the basis of those traits. Uh, but, you know, we all know that um, sometimes your race or your sex um, is the group that you belong to, and sometimes it is the behaviors that you engage in or the practices uh, you practice. Uh, and so there is this uh, kind of uh, duality going on, and sometimes, uh, sometimes, for example, I am a Jew, and sometimes I engage in Jewish behavior. And so uh, discrimination right. can be targeted at both of those, uh, and uh, it depends on um, the circumstances. And so what you end up seeing is in, um, in civil rights law, civil rights law is much better at discrimination uh, that targets status, right? Your membership discrimination. It's really a lot less good at uh, discrimination cases where it is uh, a person kind of behaving in a certain way that they associate with their identity. Um, and so examples of that from my own work, not just the book, um, are... Um, cases that kind of target masculinity and a feminine and, and femininity. Um, and so in those situations, you can easily make the argument that that is about your sex. If a man is behaving um, in an insufficiently masculine way or, um, or too femininely, uh, that is an easy argument to say that it's sex. But courts oftentimes would say that that is not about your sex. It's about the kind of the way you're acting and the way you're acting is not protected by uh, civil rights law. Uh, and so uh, my 
my thinking on this is guided in a, in a lot um, by areas of law that don't struggle with that distinction. So race discrimination law, sex discrimination law, they really have a hard time with this distinction between status and conduct, between being and doing. Um, but religious discrimination law has it down and really understands that they're different because within um, civil rights laws protections against religious discrimination, um, it is explicitly uh, said that it protects people because of their religion, because of the status that they have as a person of faith in a particular faith group, um, or because of the behaviors they engage in. Uh, and so there is a difference, again, uh, between being a Jew and keeping kosher. Um, and what I'm really excited about in terms of thinking through that relationship um, is it gives people space uh, to define how they want to understand their own identity. For example, I am a practicing Jew, but I don't keep kosher. Um, I was a vegetarian for a long time, and there's complicated feelings within certain segments of the Jewish population and vegetarianism. And so um, civil rights law has, by and large, tried to eschew and get rid of um, distinctions like that. And my argument is, rather than ignore it, it should embrace it whole heart um, and make it central to its enterprise. When you write about the, um, the current regime for protecting against religious discrimination, you point out that uh, the law's overwhelming stance is one of liberal neutrality. Yeah. So can you expand what you, what you mean by liberal neutrality and why yeah. that's desirable? Sure. Well, so it's, it's a practical necessity just given the First Amendment. And so um, the state uh, is not supposed to be endorsing a religion. And so um, the way we have in interpreted that at the same time as you have your free exercise rights under the First Amendment um, is that the courts don't get in the business of defining what religion is. Um, and so they are neutral, right? Um, but they're also, you know, liberal in the sense um, that they are um, uh, willing to embrace uh, pluralism, I mean, for lack of a better word. And so you have these cases in religious discrimination law where courts leave it up to the claimants to decide what their religion is. And so uh, what you end up getting is this universe of, uh, of faith that are kind of traditional religions, both in terms of identity and practices, Judaism, Christianity, um, Islam, but then also uh, kind of practices. Uh, and so the act of, um, you know, ritual slaughter, for example, um, keeping a Sabbath, um, a fast uh, would be kind of these traditional practices. But then it really extends even further down the continuum. And you have these cases where claimants are asserting uh, uh, claims of faith that are not kind of traditionally religious. And so some of those examples would be food preferences, the vegans and the vegetarians, um, where they're not saying that they um, are in fact religious, um, but the court's expectations is that the identity in question or the practice in question will occupy a person's um, life as if it was, uh, as if it were faith. And so it holds that same place in your own moral view. Um, and so that really opens the uh, the door for a really broad sense of what we would call religion. Um, the only real restriction um, on religious discrimination law's definition of, of religion is that it not only occupy that space, but more importantly, that it be sincerely held. And so courts don't want um, people asserting a faith claim uh, to basically get out of work. Um, but so long as it occupies a, a space in your life that is like religion, and it's a, um, a belief or a practice that you sincerely hold to, 
courts are not in the business of saying what is and is not religion. Uh, and so it's a really big universe. Um, and it's a really interesting thinking, uh, interesting way of thinking about identity, not that it is in fact religious, but there are certain identity traits that we have, that we own, um, that occupy such an important place in our lives that they are akin to religion. As we, as we continue to talk about the, um, the, the current regime, uh, you, you wrote that civil rights law is science fiction. Yeah. You also wrote that civil rights law is like geometry. Yep. And I was wondering if you could uh, expand on those uh, similes. Sure. I'm all about the simile. Um, I'm deep in similes and rhetorical questions. Um, so, uh, so science fiction, um, uh, civil rights law is attempting to do something that is ultimately impossible um, because you can't really prove discrimination um, unless someone admits to it. And so outside of the case where someone admits to engaging in discrimination, um, we have to use the law to determine whether discrimination exists. And so civil rights law is effectively trying to peer into the discriminator, the bad actor's mind, and try to figure out if they had this bad motive. Uh, and so if they don't tell you have a bad motive, the law will create these shortcuts and these evidentiary burdens uh, to try to channel the information so we can conclude that there's been discrimination. Um, I will tell you, years ago, I met someone here at ASU um, who asked me about my work and I was talking about discrimination. And I made a joke that it was like mind reading. Um, uh, and he told me that um, there's some interesting work being done on mind reading and monkeys and that he would be happy to introduce me to the people doing that work. And I was so overwhelmed by it that I could not possibly take, it, um, take, take up that offer. Um, but, you know, we are in the mind reading business in civil rights law practice because we're trying to peer into someone's mind and figure out um, whether or not they were doing something they shouldn't. Um, you know, partly that's light, but the important point to draw from that is this is entirely an imperfect body of law, right? We are asking the law to do an incredible thing, and it's a very hard thing. And that's one of the reasons why um, a lot of lawyers and a lot of civil rights lawyers in particular are, are pretty sour on the um, the ability of the law to really create wholesale change, um, because we are asking it to 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 do a pretty a pretty big lift there. Um, and so one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book is to try to come up with a new way of talking about civil rights law that might make it um, a little bit easier to at least have the conversation about whether or not um, a, a wrong has taken place and whether we can right that wrong. Um, with regard to the um, the other point, the geometry. Um, uh, a lot of the book is uh, about the concept of the box, um, and one of my critiques of existing civil rights doctrine um, is that it's too tethered to this idea um, of protected classes. Uh, and so uh, the statute says no discrimination on the basis of race, sex, national origin, color, um, and uh, religion. It doesn't really define those terms, and it's left to courts to define those terms. And so the way courts tend to treat that that framework is to say, if you are in a group that has that trait, you are protected. And so what ends up happening is the name of the game to get protection is to fit yourself into a box. Uh, and so courts are box patrollers, and they're trying to control the boundaries of that box. Uh, and so the quintessential example um, is LGBT people who have been for many years trying to get into the sex box um, within civil rights law. And that's actually an issue that's going up to the Supreme Court next term. 
Um, and I'm very concerned about what's going to happen in those cases. Um, but again, um, courts uh, have the power to say who's in and who's not in. Um, they don't actually, there's no mechanism for the people in that box um, to, uh, uh, to have a real say there. And so, you know, one of the, um, the refrains in the book is that the box is the problem and we're trying to get rid of the box. Um, and the drawing of distinctions and the drawing of lines, I argue, is, uh, is actually more problematic uh, and takes us further away from equality as opposed to closer to equality, which is the goal. And so I guess that's, that's the, the virtue of the program of protecting against religious discrimination is that the courts aren't drawing these boxes that people yes. have to come in and, and say this, you know, I've, I've been this protected religion or that protected religion. Mm -hmm. The point but, is, yeah. I sincerely treat this as religious practice. Therefore, it is protected. This, yeah, I mean, this yeah. issue yeah. of sincerity, isn't, isn't that mi a mind reading problem as well? So there's always going to be a little mind reading in law and civil rights law is not unique in this sense. Um, but what I like about the mind reading in this case um, is you have to prove it, right? Um, and so there's a case that I talk about in the book where it um, uh, involves a, a waiter at a hotel. Uh, he's Muslim um, and he uh, does not have a beard. And there's a rule at this workplace that you can't have facial hair um, uh, if you are serving in this, this hotel catering uh, position. Uh, and he's uh, apparently late to work. I don't remember the facts completely, but he's late to work and he didn't shave and he gets, he gets penalized. Um, and uh, to avoid the effect of the penalty, uh, the claimant, the, the litigant, said uh, that he's growing a beard because he's Muslim. Uh, and so he was arguing for this kind of religious freedom, uh, re this religious claim, this freedom from uh, discrimination. He wanted to practice his faith. Um, ultimately, the court concluded that um, uh, he had never had a beard before. Um, he had never, um, you know, uh, identified as that ha having been uh, a part of his uh, faith or a practice that he adhered to. Um, and you're allowed to switch practices, um, but apparently after the case, he, he shaved. And so the court de determined that based on what they could see, um, it didn't seem like it was an issue of faith. Uh, but again, you know, you're right that there is some mind reading. But what I like about um, uh, what I like about the sincerity test, for lack of a better way of saying it, is uh, it puts the ball in the, in the court of the person claiming discrimination. Um, and I think that's where the attention should always be. My problem, one of my problems, I have so many problems, but one of my problems with existing civil <laughs> rights law uh, is that we never really talk about the claimant, like the victim of discrimination, once we've determined that they're protected by the statute. The question is always whether or not the bad actor engaged in the bad act. Um, and that's a critical question, of course. Uh, but I would love to see the law push more toward talking about um, the claim to identity. Because I think ultimately what civil rights law is trying to do is calibrate the relationship between identity and equality and basically make it so we can live our lives uh, as who we are. And so uh, I would like to kind of shine the focus more on the people who are uh, uh, trying to fit in. Um, it's not a perfect fit, I realize, and it, um, it will require re-engineering uh, some aspects of the law, um, but I'm at least open to thinking that through and trying to figure out if making that change uh, will enable us to get closer to our, our norms and ideals of equality. I, I find your argument 
compelling. And I think another one of the uh, side effects or benefits of moving from a focus on bias in the mind of the employer mm -hmm. to sincerity in the heart of the claimant mm -hmm. uh, is that it, can, it lowers the, the temperature. Yes. Um, if if you're bringing a discrimination claim, you're you're saying this person has hate in their heart. They're biased against me. They're discriminating. And if the court finds for you, then there's an implicit kind of uh, uh, a, a judgment and uh, and a guilty conscience on the part of the person who is found to have engaged in the discrimination. So even bringing the claim is kind of uh, accusatory. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. when you switch to accommodating a person sincerely held uh, beliefs or practices, I think you, you lose that kind of um, moral element, and I, I think that can be productive. Oh, I, I think I think you're totally right. That's a really great way of saying it, too. Um, I mean, there's a kind of a major and minor chord to my book, and the major chord is that ode to difference, but the, um, the minor chord is trying to introduce into uh, civil rights law this obligation to give reasons. Um, and this obligation to make people talk to each other, because I do think um, we are losing that art. Um, and it is so charged when you say uh, when you say that someone engaged in discrimination. I'm not positive, but I my my memory, my law school memory, which is old now, um, tells me that saying that someone is a, uh, calling uh, accusing someone of being a racist is is liable per se. I think. Um, I think I'm not positive about that. Don't quote me, listeners. Uh, but, uh, but like, I mean, you know, I, I am a firm believer, um, and I know that it's not a panacea, but I'm a firm believer um, in uh, not just the concept of um, uh, microaggressions, um, but the concept of microprogressions, right? I'm a firm believer that we can take tiny steps, um, and critical in taking tiny steps is forcing people to talk to each other and learn about each other and experience each other. Um, one of the big problems with that that mindset is it means people who are different bear the burden of teaching people, uh, and that's not fair. Um, uh, but my response to that is it, it might be worth it, at least to some extent, um, to kind of help. But uh, that's what I think is so magical about the workplace, right? The workplace has a special kind of alchemy because you are required to be there. Most people have to work. Um, they need the money. Um, uh, you often... Uh, don't get uh, really any say in who you work with, um, and you are subservient to some sort of uh, you know kind of greater cause, sometimes a profit cause, sometimes a nonprofit cause, um, and you are first you are forced to exist together. There's a um, a legal scholar who's been very influential in my thinking uh, named Cynthia Esland, who has a book called Working Together and a series of articles that led up to it. Um, uh, and it opened my eyes to this idea that one of the things that civil rights law is trying to do, um, is to create this little microcosm of of difference uh, that we will uh, that will change us, and that when we leave and we go to our segregated communities and segregated along all different kinds of lines, um, that we will still be connected to the people who are different from us. Uh, actually, I mean, one of the hard parts about that argument is I'm in academia, and that doesn't feel like my experience as much, and it might be more of a different type of work environment. Um, but I still think there's a lot of good um, in the idea. Um, and I love the opportunity um, to see people's minds change on topics um, that they just hadn't been exposed to, um, whether it is tattoos, whether it is piercings, whether it is skin color, whether it is religion, 
Um, in my experience, people, most people, I can't say all, but most people uh, want to give each other the benefit of the doubt. They just haven't had enough experience with each other. And so I'm trying to engineer the law in such a way um, to facilitate conversation um, in the hope that um, we can get beyond uh, accusing each other. Because I do think there's also really interesting research that most people don't think they have uh, bias, right? And most people uh, right. think that's something other people have. Um, and that's a real, that makes it really hard to right wrongs um, when nobody wants to admit to that. One of the um, one of the benefits that a reader of your book will experience is that they will learn about and experience the differences of a number of, uh, of people who you, who you present throughout the book. Uh, would you tell us about Ms. Jesperson? Sure. Uh, uh, Darlene Jesperson worked as a bartender in a sports bar uh, located in a casino in Reno, Nevada. She worked there for a long time, uh, and she was very good at her job. She had won, uh, I don't know if there are awards for it, but she had received positive reviews. Her coworkers liked her. Her bosses liked her. Her customers liked her. Um, she was good. She was good at her job. Uh, and uh, she didn't wear makeup. That was a part of who she was. Um, and that was fine with her employer. They had a, uh, preference for women who worked in the service component of the, of that industry to wear makeup, but it wasn't required. Um, and then at some point they, uh, engineered a shift, uh, in their policy. They adopted, um, a new policy, uh, that I think was called the personal best program, which is like the most condescending name for, um, some sort of grooming code. Uh, at a workplace. Right. And what they did is <laughs> terrible. Could you imagine? Um, and they they brought in a stylist and the stylist did, did you over and then took your photo and then you put your photo in your locker and every day you had to look like your photo. Um, I don't, uh, it's a podcast, so it's not great for, for visuals, but um, if you search, if you do a search online for Darlene Jesperson, her picture will come up um, and you can see what she looks like in her daily life and then what her personal best was at work. It was not her personal best. Um, and when you see it, it just seems cruel to make people um, uh, not look their person the best. But uh, And so the new rule for women is that women had to wear makeup. Men were forbidden from wearing makeup and women had to. Um, you know, the average, uh, the average woman, I can't speak for them, uh, but um, I don't know how strongly women will feel about that. I'm sure some women don't have a problem with it. I'm sure some women do have a problem with it. And I'm sure there um, are people, you know, on, on various sides of that, um, of that range. It was a big problem for Darlene Jesperson. She tried to wear it and she couldn't make it work. Um, and she uh, ultimately told her bosses that. They said that it's required. They tried to find her another job that wouldn't be too much of a demotion. It didn't exist. And she ended up losing her job, um, which to a lot of people seems strange that she would care that much about makeup. That's actually what I think is important about the case. But let me say one more thing before I um, go back to that. Uh, so she brought a lawsuit under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 alleging sex discrimination. Um, and she made a bunch of arguments. Um, one is about the different treatment between men and women. Uh, women have to, men don't. The courts didn't buy that. Um, and the other was that um, the makeup requirement uh, was based on a gender stereotype, um, that women have to look a certain kind of way to be pretty. Um, and the court ultimately um, concluded uh, that it was not discrimination. Um, and their way of doing that was to say that um, effectively, the complaints of a single woman cannot amount to sex discrimination. Um, and so what the court is really looking for is this kind of like broad narrative about all women, not one woman. Um, now, keep in mind, the statute says individual, 
right? It doesn't ever talk about um, uh, the groups. The group is never really mentioned. It's about individuals facing discrimination, um, but set that aside. Um, what's really important to me, the thing that I, I put aside before was that if you read the case, if you read her, um, her deposition testimony when um, they brought her in to ask her questions before a trial, um, she didn't talk about sex discrimination. She, um, she said things like, um, you know, I don't feel dignified when I wear makeup. I don't feel like myself, um, uh, that I can't be who I am uh, when uh, I have to wear makeup. And so, you know, the heart of what she's talking about is, is that it's not sex discrimination, it's Darlene Jesperson discrimination, right? Now, there's no such thing as Darlene Jesperson discrimination. There's a, only sex discrimination. One of my arguments in the book is that stories like Darlene's matter because it matters when we when we capture that tipping point for a person, right? When we capture that identity trait that someone is not willing to sacrifice. Um, and again, at most people, it's probably not makeup, but for this one particular person, makeup was essential to who she was. So in, in, in the sense of not wearing makeup and she didn't want right. to be someone else. Um, and I like the idea of the law caring about those core identities because there are core identities in American law and American civil rights law um, and sometimes they are the critical identity for other people. Uh, but we all know in our lives, there are other parts of identities that sometimes take priority and they're very contextual. Uh, and so um, I tended in the book and the book is just, it's, it's overflowing with stories. It really is a storytelling book more um, in a lot of ways, more than a law book. Um, but um, I described it to someone as a, a, a book about people with a tiny bit of law in it. Um, but uh it's me, the, the, the kind of through line of all of these stories, um, it's just people who have an identity that is very important to them. Uh, and for some reason, the employer can't make it work. Uh, and I'm trying to find ways to see if we can force the employer and the employee uh, to find common ground to see if they can make space. Because um, ultimately, I think that's what we all want, right? Is we all want the space to be who we are uh, to the best extent possible. Does does Darlene Jesperson's case come out differently if she has an allergy to makeup? It totally does, because then it's a, a disability. Um, which, again, I, I mean, uh, I understand why that's the case, um, but I do think we should interrogate as a legal community um, why the um, the identity traits that we get that are completely out of our control um, are. Uh, set aside in one pot, and then the ones that are in our control are another pot. Um, uh, because I think when you draw the line firmly as just purely biology, and in certain cases, medicine, medical, um, we lose sense of a lot of what identity is. Um, is oftentimes identity is about choice. Um, I'm of the of the mind that, for example, um, you can't talk about you know these hair discriminating discrimination cases without talking about race. Uh, but there's volition in all of those hair discrimination cases um, because people choose how to style their hair. Um, and so uh, the law has decided when um, you have a, a qualified disability that you're in this kind of other hopper um, of protection. Um, and I support that, um, but I do think that we shouldn't only protect identity traits that we are born with. Um, because I value choice, and I actually think that our identities change over time, and they change, um, you know, sometimes from moment to moment, but really, uh, we require the ability to explore who we are. 
Um, and there are a lot of identity traits that that change. And I'm not just thinking about, um, you know, gender identity and trans status. Um, you know, I, I think about this in, in religion. I think about this in politics. I think about this um, in, you know, the kind of way you approach the world. Uh, and so, yeah, it would be different. And um, it's not the kind of thing that I easily accept. There are, um, I guess, two competing visions of equality mm -hmm. that, that you talk about. Um, yeah. And you say that, that sameness and difference are distinct, but not contradictory. Right. Can, can you tell us what the role of difference is uh, uh, in your in your program? Sure. Let me let me go sameness first, though, because I think it's best to talk about difference um, as a uh, once you you hit sameness, because I do think that sameness is the core of American Civil Rights Act, and, and the basic idea is that um, uh, fundamentally we are all the same, right? And the goal is to get rid of identity traits, and so there is this. Um, I would say fervent strain in American civil rights law um, that we should be blind to identity traits, um, that we should not see race, we should not see color, we should not see sex. Um, the goal is to completely, um, uh, completely take them off the table. Uh, and so that's one way of doing equality, right? Is to say that these identity traits don't matter, and so we should treat people as if they are fundamentally uh, the same. Um, and that, actually, I, yeah, I, I just wanted to say I think that that is. The, the core of the bias determination where we say, did this, did this characteristic factor into your decision-making mm -hmm. and you treated someone differently because of their sex or their race or whatever? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, and there's like, there's a American law has taken like, it's like sameness on steroids, right? There's all of these, these, these cases where, where they, they try to get to such granular points of proving how, similarly situated people are that oftentimes you can't find someone to compare yourself to. You know, I'm a firm believer that there is difference within groups. Um, and I tend to think about this, um, you know, in my own life uh, and all of the identity traits that I have uh, and all the ways that I live. Um, but I, I think that, you know, and I feel comfortable saying that no two Jews are the same, um, that, you know, people uh, live their life uh, you know, in a lot of ways, we're the same uh, as other people of that identity, but then also in ways that they're different. Uh, and so I, I am interested in a vision of equality that says we will uh, protect you because you are different, right? We will protect you um, in the ways, uh, we will protect the ways in which you're different, right? The ways in which you live your life differently than other people. Um, and a lot of what I'm hoping the law can do um, is allow people to articulate that, because I do think there's this kind of truth and reconciliation value of uh, saying this is who I am and this is what I need. Uh, and then an employer turning around and saying, uh, well, this is what we need and this is what we can make work. Um, and I think there's value in that uh, conversation. Uh, and so uh, I don't know how scandalous it is to say that we are all not the same, because uh, I think in a lot of ways, sometimes we are. I mean, there is no question that when you are talking about uh, obvious bias and sometimes even hate, uh, you know, just being a certain way, uh, just having that identity trait means you are exposed to bias. Um, and so there are certain kinds of bias uh, uh, that people will experience because of who they are, and it is similar along certain axes. And I try to gesture toward that pretty, ex uh, actually it's not even a gesture, I talk about that in a later part of the book um, uh, as a means of trying to reconcile um, uh, how I can possibly justify protecting people with tattoos 
um, on the same level as people who are facing race discrimination, as an example. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know how satisfying my answers are, um, but I'm sensitive to it. Um, but I do think, again, um, the more difference we are exposed to, the better it is for everybody, um, is, is my, uh, my headline. Well, I think that, I think that um, the difference between the protection that is afforded for, for race discrimination, for example, it's a different kind of protection than is afforded for disability or for religion. Uh, race discrimination is not allowed whatsoever. Religious discrimination is combated by requiring reasonable accommodation. Yeah. Can you, you talk about, about what that protection entails? Sure. So there uh, are only a small handful of identity traits that have this reasonable accommodation protection. The, the two big ones are, um, are as you mentioned, religion and uh, disability. The other ones that off the top of my head I can think of are veteran status and certain statutes. Um, and then also under Obamacare, there is an accommodation provision for um, mothers who are uh, breastfeeding and who need uh, time and space to express milk. Um, however, that, that provision doesn't have a, a cause of action linked to it. Uh, so you can't sue okay. Uh, but it's a good step, I think. We didn't get the whole way. Sure. It's a good step. Uh, so the way reasonable accommodation works um, is um, if you have these identities that receive this protection, um, uh, you are uh, afforded this uh, ability to expect your employers to take steps to accommodate your identity, to make space for what you need. So in the disability context, imagine that it's uh, an interpreter or uh, it's some sort of access, maybe a ramp. Um, or uh, an elevator. Uh, and so in that situation, um, the employer must, in fact, engage in a kind of discrimination, right? The employer must take steps to remold the workplace around you. Um, there is this saying that you'll see repeated over and over again in civil rights cases um, that the goal of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act is uh, to prevent employers from introducing bias into the workplace. Um, and so that's the prohibition on that kind of classic disparate treatment side. Um, and reasonable accommodation, the employer is, in effect, introducing, I wouldn't call it bias, but they're introducing difference into the equation um, because they are requiring uh, affirmative steps on the employer's part to uh, make space and, and remodel as, as needed. Um, the disability protection is different from the religion protection in two ways. Um, you know, uh, one is uh, there are harder definitions to get into the disability context under the ADA and then with the ADA uh, recent amendments, um, and then as compared to the religion. Uh, and then secondly, the uh, reasonable accommodation standard for disability is um, what I'd say is lower, right? Um, it's uh, employers have a, a more obligation to accommodate disability than they do um, uh, religion, although uh, the kind of central framework is the same. Uh, so yeah, so it is a difference in that the employer must take steps uh, to make space. And so, and, and to, to let the cat out of the bag, my argument is that we should be moving more towards um, an accommodation model for identity more largely, um, because I do think it will have this kind of wholesale trickle-down uh, benefit for all people. I think one of the benefits um, that, I, that, that I identified when I was thinking about this is especially in light of your discussion of the boxes that people are trying to, to force themselves into. Yeah. Um, 
the current civil rights regime kind of sounds like um, the old uh, sides of court distinction between law and equity. Yeah. Where you had to file the the correct pleading, and if you brought this as an action in Trover, for example, and it was right. incorrect, then you're shut out. Yeah. And we've moved to a, a, a single uh, a unified complaint system where you stake your your facts and and you your your uh, your prayer for relief, mm-hmm. and then the court evaluates evaluates that holistically. Yeah. And it seems like you're calling for a similar move. Yeah. within civil rights that's i love can i tell you how much i love that if it's okay i'm going to steal that so aggressively um uh it's funny i teach one of the classes i teach is property um and we spend a lot of time talking not just about trover but just the, the you know the distinction between law and equity the collapse of law and equity um and property law is one of those rare fields that still you know in a lot of ways loves the distinction between law and equity um, and i'm an equity guy right not surprisingly um, and so, uh, and I'm like deep, I'm deep in the ways of equity. And so, uh, I love the way you're talking about that. Cause it's totally true. Um, uh, and if you, you know, one of the things that I did is I went and I looked at all of these employment discrimination, um, that litigation manuals, like advice from practitioners, how do you litigate these places specifically on the plaintiff side? Um, and you know, it's all about, you know, ha- you know, latching yourself and anchoring to a protected class and it's always protected class even though those are, you know, those are made up words, right? They're not in the statute. Um, I, that's why I always try to talk about protected traits because um, I think there's, there's value in, you know, repurposing um, and refocusing that, that, that word. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great idea because I think that so much is lost as we try to craft ourselves, um, you know, onto these existing forms, whether they're, you know, law claims or equity claims. Um, and again, you know, for me, you know, the area that I wrote about first, um, these gender and sex cases and the sexuality cases, um, I've become pretty disillusioned about, you know, a lot of the arguments that I myself had made for many years, um, trying to show why, you know, sexual orientation discrimination is, um, is in fact a form of sex discrimination. And I think it is, right? Um, I want to be clear. I fully believe that when we, you know, engage in stereotyping behavior about um, gay people, men and women, um, it is motivated by gender and it is motivated by ideas about how men and women are supposed to act. And I firmly believe that. Um, but I don't sure. know that the law is remotely equipped to unpack any of that. Um, and, you know, to me, I've kind of landed in this place where I don't think the law should be doing that, right? Because um, uh, I just don't think it's good at it. Um, and I don't think that that it's, I don't think that that's unique to that context. I think there's lots of a context in identity cases and civil rights cases where the law is just fumbling. Um, and so people like me um, and people like you and lots of you know people who care about this stuff are constantly trying to advocate and teach and to you know give a broader, more holistic understanding. Um, but you know it's it's not the really it's not really the way that law was designed to work, which is part of why you know I'm arguing in the book that. There's not a lot of tools we use for modern problems that were built in the 60s. Um, and it just seems to me uh, it's not clear that the tools we have right now are equipped for the way we live identity today. As I, as I mentioned, I, I, I found your argument very compelling. Um, and I'm, I'm curious how you think it could be actualized. Um, if the tools that we currently have are, are uh, 
anachronistic or maladjusted to current circumstances. Can we can we implement what you're advocating for within the current mandatory <laughs> regime? Yeah, or that's right. <laughs> um, so so you know I don't claim to have written a practical book. Um, uh, <laughs> it is not you know there's I mean like you know I have a. <laughs> The word utopian uh, occurs in the book and not as a criticism. Um, uh, and so, you know, I don't necessarily do practical in this book, although I do think there's there's a, a practical lesson to draw from it. Um, I don't think, you know, one of the one of the questions someone asked me early on when I when I showed uh, some drafts was what would the statute look like? Um, and they were so, you know, underwhelmed with my answer, which was I have no idea um, because I'm not really in, I'm not really in that phase where I'm saying. This is how we do it. Um, uh, you know, I am satisfied if someone comes away from the book uh, thinking at least a little more curiously about or thinking that we could talk about identity a little bit better in law. That's a huge win for me. Um, if we can, like, just think about all of the different ways that identity manifests in civil rights law, I take that as, as a big win. Um, and partly, you know, one of my hopes was just to display people's stories. Because um, I, I think that one of the great benefits of civil rights law is that people are heard. Um, and, you know, in my experience, a lot of people don't really care about the outcome of their case as much as they care about, you know, an opportunity to speak. It's not even about the day in court. It's about someone has to listen to what I need. Um, uh, and so that's a value to me, too. Um, you know, practically, I don't know. Uh, I don't know that we are in a position uh, to do what I would hope to do, in large part because the law is going the other way. Um, if anything, I'm arguing for a way to get the law to broaden open, but it's pretty clear to me that the law is, is closing further shut. Um, it's harder and harder to win a discrimination case. I don't see any way that that gets better in the short run. Um, and, you know, civil rights laws are really hard to change. They, they change, you know, I'm writing mostly about federal law, a little bit about state law. They're easier to change at state law. And there's been some pretty great changes in recent um, uh, in recent years at the state level that, that give me hope. I mean, New York's ban on um, hair discrimination is amazing. Um, you know, all of the, the movement on various sex and gender laws at the state level, um, some uh, accommodation protections for, uh, you know, working mothers and uh, pregnant women, that gives me hope. Um, but uh, I think ultimately being a civil rights attorney is a very sad job. Um, uh, but again, let me just say, hopefully, uh, civil rights law is all about promise. Um, it's all about wanting the absolute best for, uh, you know, people and wanting our society to work uh, in a way where we, you know, look out for, you know, the little guy. We look out for the people who need the most protection. And so I am hopeful um, that at least people will, my book will at least make people um, think about some of that. Um, and maybe someone smarter than me can come up with a way uh, to fix it, because um, uh, there's plenty of those people out there, uh, and I have high hopes. So, yeah. Well, I was trying to to think about it because in in the passage that I read when we when we first started talking, mm -hmm. um, you exhort the reader to imagine this yeah. alternative, and you do that a few times throughout through the book. And I was trying to think, okay, who is the who's the the person who's doing that imagining? Is it a judge? Is it a, a plaintiff's attorney? Is it a legislator? And 
uh, you talk about this in the book, but there's a gap between what the law can actually accomplish yeah. and what what our lived experience is. And it seems to me, um, I really think that HR managers should read this book. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because there's no reason why a corporation can't implement a program like this. Totally. Yep. They re- they're required to implement uh, uh, anti-race discrimination measures and religious accommodation measures, but they could go above and beyond. They could implement a right to personality. That, that's such a great point. And they do, right? I mean, we know from experience that corporate America uh, – is a first mover in uh, anti-discrimination protections, right? Because they want the best workforce uh, and they want to hire the best talent and they want to uh, create the best working environment. Now, there's, it's not always perfect. And I think uh, recent years have been uh, have seen that on display, um, but they have the ability uh, to make uh, to make change well before the law. Uh, that's a great, um, that's a really great uh, suggestion. It's interesting too, because, um, uh, you know, I've done a little, uh, a, a lot of reading and a little bit of writing just about um, harassment and, you know, the relationship between HR and harassment is fraught. Um, but it seems to me uh, what I am really talking about is, and my targets, even though I didn't think about them as I was writing and I didn't really write to them, um, it's not just HR, it's not just employers, it's also employees. Um, because, you know, uh, as we go to work, um, you know, we have a lot built up in our minds about, you know, who we are and what we need. Um, and oftentimes we don't communicate that. Uh, and so, you know, I've been in administration for quite a few years now at my college, the law school I teach at. Um, and, you know, the advice I give all of the faculty here is to just tell me what they need. Um, and, you know, I want to do whatever I can to, to make it work to the extent that I have the power um, because I want them to thrive in the workplace. Um, and I don't think employees think about that sort of thing. And in some workplaces, you're effectively told, you know, you can't. But to the extent that you can, um, communicating your needs, uh, I think, has a lot of power because um, it forces people to talk to you about your life. Um, and if more people do it, it becomes more uh, accepted. And I realize that I have a lot of privilege, and it's very easy for me to say these sorts of things. Um, and I'm well aware of that, and I want to recognize that. Um, but I'm talking to employees, too. Um, and ultimately, I would love for employees, employers to find uh, balance, you know, to, uh, you know, however that's possible. But I love the HR thing. That's great. I think that uh, insofar as employees can think about uh, uh, what, you're, what you're proposing, I think that there are two benefits. Um, one is what we, talk, what we touched on earlier is... Mm-hmm moving from these accidental characteristics to intentional characteristics Mm -hmm. that you get to decide who you are. You get to decide how you engage with the world. And that that is just as important as the things that you didn't decide. Mm -hmm. And, and related to that building on that is, is uh, which of these things are important to you, which are the ones that you consider, uh, I believe with Ms. Jesperson, you said it goes to who, who she is as a person. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that conversation that people could have with themselves, I think that that's really a healthy thing. I, I agree with you completely. I think that's great. Yeah. Well said. So thank you for, 
Thank you for writing this book. Thank you oh, for um, thank you. doing this interview. I appreciate it. This is really this is really fun. I'm uh, I'm grateful that you uh, wanted to take the time to talk about my book. <laughs> well, it's a, a real treat for me. Um, what um, you have another book that you're working on, or are there... <laughs> so I is there anything else I, that you're I am working on two at? projects. I'll tell you about them. I'm working on two projects. Um, one that I uh, um, uh, one that's very personal. Um, I was involved in a lawsuit um, uh, many years ago um, where I was sued um, and I was a litigant. Um, the case was ultimately dismissed. Um, one of the things that I've learned about that case is um, I it has changed the way I think about how litigation works. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of people told me that they, the person who sued me had no claim. It was ultimately dismissed. Um, I have found that I am the most sympathetic to that person um, <laughs> of anyone I've talked to, um, and uh, and I don't know, and I, I'm interested in that. Um, and so I'm, I'm writing about that. I'm also, believe it or not, um, writing um, something that I hope is a book one day um, about lawyers and clients who have sex. Um, uh, and the model rules of ethical conduct prohibit lawyers and clients from engaging in sexual acts together. Um, and uh, I am making an argument against that rule, strangely enough. Um, and the argument is uh, that there is not, there's a, a similar rule prohibiting lawyers and clients from engaging in business practices. Um, however, um, there are safety valves that allow the lawyers and clients to do it, provided the lawyer takes certain steps. Um, and so um, I'm writing a paper that argues um, that uh, we should not necessarily be so comfortable with this idea that greed um, is somehow better than lust or that lust is worse than greed. Um, and I'm hoping to turn mm. that into a book um, mm. and people will hate me. Um, but that's great. So, <laughs> so those are some of the things I'm working on. Well, I think that's, I think that's very intriguing. And Thanks. I think that that... Um, will you talk about it with me in a couple years? I'd be very happy to. That's Great. an imaginative reevaluation of how we draw lines. Yeah, that's and I think that that's what you did very well in Outsiders. Thank you. That's kind. I appreciate that. So our guest today was Zachary Kramer. Again, the book is Outsiders from uh, Oxford University Press. It is out now. Uh, thank you for being on the program. Thank you very much for having me.